The teaching today is going to be fairly demanding of you. Uh, so grab your Bibles out. We're stopping in four different places. Um, and as, as like a, a hack for keeping things uh, roughly to time, I just sort of speak faster. So you'll have to sort of follow me along as I do that. We're uh, week two in our foundation series. Michael kicked it off last week. And what we are uh, hoping to do is to actually... Um, get an impression of the foundations of our faith. We understand that the New Testament truths that we hold so dear that we find in Christ actually make sense to us because of categories given to us in the Old Testament. That there are these themes, and we're going to take eight of them, themes that run from the earliest parts of the Old Testament right through and are developed and are elaborated upon, and then they, all of these themes meet in Jesus Christ. And so we want to take eight of these themes and uh, look at them. But this is not just a cerebral kind of activity. It's not just mental kind of teaching to learn more things. Actually, when we know more about the foundations of our faith, we build a foundation for our lives, don't we? And uh, just sort of looking around and seeing the state of the church at the moment, I think we all recognize that this year is probably um, one of the most important years to have a sturdy foundation because Jesus tells us that it is during times of crisis that foundations are found out. He tells that parable of the two houses, one is built on sand, one is built on rock, and both of them look structurally sound until the rain comes down, the streams rise, and the winds blow and beat against the houses. And one of them falls down instantly with a crash, and the other one stands firm. And so we're asking this question through this series, where is your foundation? Where is your foundation? We want these themes, in other words, not just, we, we don't want to just trace them through the scripture. We want to actually trace them through the scripture and out into our lives so that what we learn actually becomes foundational for the way we think. And we're beginning with the foundation of God himself. Now, the way I, I usually prepare sermons these days, because my house is a very uh, chaotic one, uh, Kay says Toby's a good kid, and he is most of the time, uh, but it's still challenging at home, and therefore I prepare my sermons while I'm working. I clean windows for a living, and as I do that, I'll meditate, I'll pray over a passage, and I'll take notes in my phone. And then a couple of weeks beforehand, I'll sort of assemble these into a teaching. But this time when I came to that notes file, uh, to my dismay, I found it empty. Um, because my phone had made an update that just erased them all. And so I got there and I was going, okay, so there were about 80 notes that had just gone, vanished. And, and amazingly, in this day and age, I actually couldn't recover them. But one thing that I did uh, salvage, if you like, from that experience was an analogy to begin this teaching with. Uh, and here it is. If you imagine that your uh, understanding of who God is is like a file of loose notes, and on each scrap piece of paper is a different aspect of who God is. Some of those notes that you've filed away have come from very, very good places. Your years of faithful reading of the scripture, uh, good sermons that you've heard preached, experiences with God during difficulty. But some of your understandings of who God is actually come from uh, not so good places. Maybe you had a difficult relationship with your father. And so when you come to uh, look at the fatherhood of God, you actually impose some of that onto him. Or maybe you came into the Christian faith from another religious background and some of those old beliefs have smuggled their way in. Or maybe you just have lots of psychological fears and concerns and you put them 
onto God. And so from time to time, we need to quite deliberately press delete on our notes app, if you like, uh, throw out the file, and actually look at the Bible with fresh eyes and say, now what has God actually spoken about himself? That is going to be our foundation. So uh, we're going to begin in uh, Genesis. So if you could turn to Genesis 1, our first stop, Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. The Bible is not a symmetrical book. As some people say from time to time, you might hear someone say, well, the Bible goes from creation in Genesis 1 to 2 to new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. But strictly speaking, that's not actually true. The Bible begins with God alone. The Bible begins just with God. And then it ends with a very populated universe. Which means that, strictly speaking, we don't get to choose whether we will make God the foundation of our lives or not. God actually is the foundation, not just of our lives, but of all existence. Everything that follows God in the Bible begins with God. And we can choose to live in the light of that, or we can be, in the biblical terms, we can be fools who actually deny the existence of God in our lives. In the beginning, God then created. So this is our fundamental relationship with God, the relationship between creator and creation. is easily said, but we can lose it sometimes in how we actually relate to God. Sometimes you might notice this in your prayers. Does prayer in your life, your prayer to your creator, when you speak to him, does that, do you find that gets pushed into the margins of your life at times? Do you find that it gets... Uh, pushed into that area where you've got some leftover time after everything else is accounted for? And what do you pray to God? Do you find sometimes that you just pray requests to God or you just pray, God help me, sorts of prayers? Now, in prayer, we actually need to be aware of the fact that there is a gulf between us and God, the gulf between creator and creation. And that will realign our priorities. As Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we don't start with ourselves, do we? We start, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we relate to God as creator, we recognize his ways are greater than our ways. We actually need him first and foremost. One way of doing that is, it's sort of old-fashioned, probably a lot of you still do it, but for the younger generation maybe, just pray on your knees. Maybe just pray on your knees, and sometimes your posture can teach you some things, can teach you that you're actually, um, you're, you're lowly, you're a creature. So this understanding that God is our creator needs to fully uh, envelop our relationship with him, but then it also needs to change the way we relate to this world. This world that we live in is God's creation, and Sean, Lord willing, will teach us more about this in a couple of weeks. And it was created, did you see here, by the very speech of God. Verse 3, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
The Bible goes on to tell us that God also intimately sustains this world by his speech. And we sung some of the lyrics from Job before. Who has held the oceans in his hands? God actually continues to be intimately involved in every single aspect of this world. This is God's creation. Here's how John Piper puts it. He says, It is a tragic fact of the modern world that most contemporary scientifically minded people think it is more true and significant to speak of the technicalities of photosynthesis than to say, God makes the grass grow. This is not just a sentence for children. It is a sentence, a reality, desperately needed by the soul-shrunken modern man whose whole world has been reduced from a theatre of wonder to a machine running mindlessly on mechanical laws. We need to actively reject the culture's view of this world. There, there are no such thing as natural laws. There are no such thing as natural laws. Natural laws are God, the creator, acting consistently in his creation. God makes the grass grow. To make this relevant to the time we find ourselves in, I want to plead with you this morning not to view this pandemic, which is currently in God's creation, as people who don't know God view it. If you think that a pandemic can turn to the left or to the right, can mutate or evolve, can, uh, uh, can cause anyone to die, without God's direct say-so, the God who spoke everything into existence, you are not actually dealing with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible speaks and it is done. And because he speaks, we have a basis for this series. And we have a basis for actually understanding God because God communicates to us. And that's what we want to look at in this series. How does he do that? So as we go on from here, we learn uh, lots of things about God uh, through Genesis. But we're not given actually a direct description of him so much as we're given his actions and we make some inferences based on those. So we've already said that um, God is the creator. And we learn very quickly that God desires relationship with his creatures. And we've called this the theme of temple. A temple is where God meets his people. And the first temple, if you like, is the Garden of Eden, where God walks in intimate fellowship with Adam and Eve. Um, we find out quickly as well that God is a moral God. He gives a command to Adam and Eve. They disobey it, and he judges them for it by exiling him from that garden. But because God is so committed to relationship with human beings, amazingly, this free God, this God who speaks and it is so willingly binds himself in relationship with his creatures and promises to do them good. That's the theme of covenant. And the main one we see of those is the covenant given to Abraham to bless him and make him a blessing through his offspring. It's reiterated to his son Isaac. And then Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is given this blessing. God chooses his covenant partners. Uh, we learn then that God will actually provide for his covenant people to escape his judgment by means of substitutionary sacrifice. And that um, we get the first echoes of that in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, and that God values faith in his covenant people. Again, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in the background of all of this is, um, is whirring away this promise of God's ultimate provision, um, the Messiah. And we get a promise of the Messiah as early as chapter 3 of Genesis, right after the fall. God is working on the solution. 
And so you see that these themes in Scripture, if you like, and we're going to take each of these eight themes over the period of this series, these eight themes in Scripture actually are all aspects of God. And so in a sense, yes, I'm talking to you about God today, but as we go through this series, all of them just give us an insight into the nature and character of the God we serve. And none of it is actually self-evident. We require, we require the Word of God to actually tell us all of these things. Stop two, Exodus chapter 34. If you'll turn with me there, Exodus chapter 34. As a bit of context as we come into this passage in Exodus, um, God's people, Israel, God's covenant people are enslaved in Egypt. God appears to Moses and he calls him to bring them out. And you remember at the burning bush, God reveals his name to Moses. He reveals his personal name, Yahweh, and he says, my name means I am who I am. Now the word, uh, the name Yahweh has already been used 140 times in Genesis, but it's not yet been defined. Here is the point at which it is defined, and in our Bibles, uh, most of you will know that's replaced Yahweh with the capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh brings his people out of Egypt, and he brings them to a foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, receives the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments uh, pertain to the worship of God. They say, uh, you shall have no gods before me, and you shall not make an idol, a false god. And when Moses comes back down the mountain from receiving these commands from God, he finds that the people of Israel have already broken the first two. They've fashioned for themselves a golden calf. And in the aftermath of all of this, Moses says to the true God, Show me your glory. And amazingly, God obliges. He says, yep, I'll show you my glory. Puts Moses in a rock and passes backwards, whatever that means. And he proclaims his name at that point. Now he proclaims what his name means. Um, and if you're following along here, we're up to verse uh, 5 of Exodus 34. And there he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God's glory, if you like, is the brightness of his personality. Because when it passes before Moses, God speaks about himself. And this is the first time God actually tells us who he is. And this passage actually becomes the most quoted passage in the whole of the Old Testament. So if there's ever a time to press delete on your understandings of who God is and what's been smuggled in there, and to start again, here it is. Here's where we start. This is who our God is. And if you like, and I actually don't really like, uh, this passage reveals two sides to God. That's not really correct, but it will be helpful for our analysis. Two sides of God. Firstly, God is overwhelmingly kind. Verse 6 and 7. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful, gracious, overwhelmingly kind. Which means that that sovereign creator we met in Genesis, who speaks and it is so, he is actually kindly disposed toward his creatures. We're told first that he's merciful and gracious. These are terms uh, reserved only for God in the Old Testament. Merciful and gracious. And that word merciful actually contains the word for womb in it. 
it pictures the idea of a, a mother who is naturally compassionate for the fruit of her womb, who actually feels things viscerally for them. So God feels for us and he wants to do us good. We're told then that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love or faithfulness. That word faithfulness might be in your translation just rendered truth. It's the same word. Uh, this idea that God is endlessly reliable. And again, we're going to get to the topic of covenant later on. So I'll let whoever deals with that uh, speak more. Steadfast love is quite a common word in uh, the Hebrew scriptures. It's the word hesed. And uh, it, it's sometimes rendered loving kindness, which I think is a really good translation, loving kindness, because what it speaks to is both a heart disposition and a practical uh, outworking. So it's used when a higher status person in the Bible sympathizes with a lower status person and does them some act of practical kindness. It's used when Joseph, for example, is in prison and the cupbearer gets set free and Joseph says, now when you have your freedom and I'm still here down in prison, show me hesed and mention me to Pharaoh. Show me loving kindness. And we see that then that, that uh, loving kindness or steadfast love here is sort of grace-shaped love. It's there in the context as well. Verse 7 says that Yahweh keeps steadfast love for thousands. And what does that look like? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's uh, love works itself out in grace. And he is said to be abounding in this attribute. Did you see that? Abounding in steadfast love. That takes the form both of length. Uh, it says here that God uh, shows steadfast love for thousands. And in context, that should be thousands of generations because it's contrasted later on with God showing justice to the third and fourth generation. So he shows steadfast love for thousands of generations, limitless generations. And there's also a depth in this abounding love because did you notice there that he uses three words for wrongdoing? Forgiving, verse 7, iniquity and transgression and sin. What God is saying here is that he doesn't just forgive small sins. He doesn't just forgive accidental sins. He doesn't just forgive sins that you've committed once and haven't committed over the last 40 years. God's grace, God's steadfast love, actually causes him to forgive you for all sorts of sins. So, to paraphrase, God is reluctant to become angry and he's overflowing with grace-shaped love. Now, I think this is really important for us to get as a foundation because as we relate to God functionally, we so often get the reverse uh, in our minds. And so we uh, are in relationship with God and we say, yes, Jesus has died for me, so yes, I have this connection with God, but he knows I'm going to fail and in a sense he's almost kind of poised. And when I do, when I do sin... I'm instantly under the displeasure of God. I'm under the condemnation of God. I'm under the anger of God. And, and we feel that because then it takes us a while. Do you notice this sometimes? That it takes you a while to come back to God. And you sort of feel almost like you've got to earn his trust back again. Okay, I can't come straight back and, and repent straight after I've committed this sin. I've got to take some time, formulate a plan. But we see here that the exact opposite is true. Actually, when you sin, God is slow to become angry very slow, very reluctant to become angry. And even when he is uh, displeased with you, he is actually abounding, he's ready, he's poised to show you steadfast love again and forgiveness. Really what's being pictured here is the parable of 
the prodigal son. That son who commits the ultimate sin says to his father, essentially, you're dead to me, give me my inheritance, goes off, spends a lot, wastes it, sees the error of his ways, and as he's coming back, he does what we so often do. He's walking back, formulating a plan. Okay, I'll say, Father, accept me back as a slave. I'm not worthy to be your son. But as soon as the father sees him on the horizon, as soon as the father sees that he's turned back toward him, the father goes running, not with an offer of uh, slavery, but with the promise of restored sonship. This is where we build our foundation this year, on God's loving kindness. It is faithful. It is steadfast. Don't hide from God in your sin this year. Don't keep distance between yourself and God this year. Don't, when you feel the hypocrisy in your own heart, stay away from the word because you're afraid. Now come near to God. He will welcome you with open arms. The other side of God then that we see here is that he is perfectly just. Last part of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now this is the part that scares us, I think, about the nature of God. I want to say it scares us as 21st century Australians, but I don't know if it was so scary to people in the ancient world. In fact, there is a, a character in the scriptures who actually finds the first part of God's nature the most troubling, his grace and his compassion. Does anyone know who that is? Anyone here? Small crowd? No pressure? It's the Jonah. Well done, Matt. It's the prophet Jonah. Jonah, when he flees and doesn't go to Nineveh and goes to Tarshish instead, he cites this as his reason. He said, I knew you are a gracious God and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster, and that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He hated the love of God. And modern Western people hate the justice of God, the judgment of God. I want to make a quick clarification. When he says here that he... Uh, visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. We're not to imagine here that God punishes innocent children for the sins of their parents. And we know this because in Exodus 20, verse 5, 14 chapters before this, this phrase has already been uttered, but with an important addition. In the Ten Commandments there, he says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, when children continue in the sins of their parents, which they so often do, then God will visit their iniquities. So what we need to understand here is just as God is more merciful than us, so he is more acutely and fiercely just. And I want to tell you that this too is our foundation this year, the justice of God. Because maybe you'll face some injustice this year. Maybe you'll face some injustice uh, in the form of a horrific crime that's committed against you. Or maybe you'll be the victim of government policy that causes your business uh, to tank. Or maybe you'll be treated unfairly in your marriage or uh, in another relationship. Or maybe you feel like the way that this church is organising things at the moment is unfair. Maybe you'll face un injustice this year. And what will you do when you face injustice? I hope you'll do what Jesus did. Jesus built his life on the foundation of God's justice. And it says in uh, 1 Peter that when Jesus was facing supreme injustice as he was going to the cross, it says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
doesn't matter what people get away with in this life, there is one who will not clear the guilty. Two more observations quickly here. Firstly, we need to note as well that God's nature is not symmetrical. We've talked about these two sides of God. He is uh, loving and kind. He's also wrathful, just, angry. But these two things are not in equal measure. You see, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but he shows steadfast love for thousands of generations. God, if you like, is biased toward mercy. But we do see a tension here. How can God forgive the guilty without clearing the guilty? How is it that God can forgive iniquity and at the same time visit iniquity? on the fathers and the children. We see these two sides of God play out then uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And at the risk of oversimplifying, uh, let me oversimplify. Uh, We begin with the blessing of God. God blesses his people. He does what he says he will do. The people uh, then repeat the sin of the golden calf over and over and over again. And they go after idols. And that, through the narrative of the scripture, actually teaches us that that is the root of all human sin, theirs and ours, is the preference for a created thing, the preference, if you like, for the gifts of God rather than God himself. Seeing the glory of God as it has been revealed and saying, no, I prefer something else. Seeing the glory of God and saying, no, I'm going to go after a lesser thing. God is slow to anger. He gives his people lots and lots of warnings, but ultimately he cannot clear the guilty and he judges them. And when he judges them, he causes the destruction of their city and he takes them into exile. But God is merciful and so he restores them. And this is a pattern that actually repeats and repeats. On the national level and the individual level, it repeats over and over again. The justice of God and the mercy of God. And as we get to the end of this cycle, in the latter prophets, the prophets start to cry out for some permanent solution. And they say, actually, we can't keep doing this. We need new hearts. And God is going to give us a new heart. God needs to give us a permanent solution here to forgive sinners once and for all. Enter the third stop, John chapter 1. If you'll turn with me there, John chapter 1, where God becomes a human being. God becomes a human being. And John expresses what that means to us by the use of the two Old Testament passages that we've just been in. So we see uh, creation language in verses 1 to 5 here. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John tells us amazingly that that God, who we said was alone before the creation, had company. He had company in the form of his word, because John tells us that the word he spoke is himself a person. And this word, he says, is in relationship with God and is God. So when I speak words to you, they express something of who I am, right? You'll get some insight into who I am by what I say. But my words are imperfect. Maybe I lie to you. Maybe I just misspeak. Maybe I can't articulate fully. And therefore, what I say is a dim approximation of who I am. But when God speaks a word, he speaks a perfect word. 
And therefore, that word, you could look at and say, well, it's distinct from him, but actually, truly, it is him. That is God. Now, other writers of the New Testament uh, use different images to convey this truth, but um, it it all gets across the same idea. So Paul calls Jesus uh, in Colossians the image of the invisible God. Okay, an image is separate from a person, but if it's a perfect image, you say, that's him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or the author of uh, Hebrews calls uh, Jesus the radiance of God's glory. So the light that comes from the sun is separate from the sun, I suppose, but the light of the sun is the sun. And so again, Jesus here is is God, and he is in relationship with God. And so you see here how we actually get, uh, not just really the beginnings, but a, a whole chunk of our understanding of the Trinity right out of five verses in the Gospel of John. The Trinity, this belief that God is one and yet is three persons. That's not some later thing that's imposed over the top of the scriptures. We're actually forced to that understanding. It's not a thing you would choose to come to, is it? One God, three persons. But we're forced to it as we see this kind of language used of the Son of God. And then John tells us, we're not quite there yet, sorry. Um, Then John tells us that this eternal, personal word of God became human in Jesus Christ Turn with me to verse 14, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here we get our Exodus language. John tells us that Jesus dwelt among us, and that word literally means pitched his tent. It's a deliberate reference back to that tent of meeting where Moses met with God. Jesus is a place in which we meet with God. And he says, we have seen his glory. And that calls back to mind Moses saying to God, show me your glory. And later on, I mean, in verse 17, John makes it quite explicit. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there's a comparison being made there. What's the shape of the glory of Jesus? What does it look like? John says it's full of of grace and truth. Now I think that's John's way of summarizing what we saw in Exodus 34, the nature of God. There it said God is abounding in grace-shaped love and faithfulness or truth. God is abounding in grace and truth. And John says Jesus is full of grace and truth. Here's how Don Carson puts it, to whom I'm indebted for this interpretation. He says, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth, was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. So you want to see God's glory? Look at Jesus. Verse 18 makes it plain. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You want to see God's glory? Look at Jesus. And we see in Jesus both sides of Yahweh's character. It's very popular in the culture to say, well, the Old Testament God is vengeful and wrathful, and Jesus, he's much kinder and much more compassionate. But actually, that's a misunderstanding either of the Old Testament God or of Jesus or of both. Actually, we saw... The Old Testament God, yes, just, but actually abounding in grace. And Jesus, yes, he's gracious, but he's also 
uh, wrathful. Um, we see that in the first chapter of John, uh, the second chapter of John, when John records the start of Jesus' ministry. What are the t- first two events he records? First, Jesus makes wine for a wedding party. Grace. And second, he goes into the temple and clears it out with a whip. Justice. Wrath. And the ultimate climax of the glory of God in Jesus in the Gospel of John comes in his death. In chapter 12, when Jesus is contemplating his death, here's what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you remember after that he hears from heaven. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The glory of God comes to its climax in the cross of Christ. And later, the Apostle Paul starts to reflect upon this moment at the cross. And he tells us that actually it's at the cross that that tension in God that we spoke about, that tension between on the one hand his forgiveness and on the other hand his justice, the cross is the moment in which that tension is relieved. Romans 3, 22 to 26 um, He begins there with the problem that we've established. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The root of human sin is seeing the glory of God and falling short of it and going after something else instead. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God shows his grace at the cross because it's at the cross that forgiveness comes to us free of charge. No effort on our own, free of charge because of the death of his son. It comes to us through faith, which is another topic we'll examine later on in this series. But we often leave this passage here. How wonderful that the cross displays the grace of God, and so it does. But Paul goes on. This was to show God's righteousness or justice because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that the cross is just because at the cross, God doesn't simply pass over sin. He doesn't simply clear the guilty. Actually, at the cross, God pours out his justice. God pours out his fierce anger. And he forgives our iniquities precisely by visiting our iniquities on his own son, the just mercy of God, the merciful justice of God at the cross. Stop four, final stop, and here we get to some application. So far we've seen uh, the development of God's glory in creation to then God's glory revealed to like a hiding Moses, God's glory revealed backwards, again, whatever that means, to a hiding Moses, And then God's glory revealed in Jesus. But even God's glory revealed in Jesus was veiled in the flesh. John and the disciples understood it, but vast crowds came into contact with Jesus and did not see his glory. But now finally, in 2 Corinthians, we're in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us that God's glory is revealed in Jesus to us, face to face. God's glory revealed fully to us. And interestingly, Paul uses the same two Old Testament references as John did, Genesis and Exodus, to get this across. I'm just going to touch briefly on the, um, the Genesis stuff. That's chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't see God's glory by nature. God actually has to speak a divine word. The same word that he spoke to cause all of this to exist, this whole universe, he spoke personally into your heart at some time in your life. And there you saw the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's an encouragement to praise God, isn't it? But it's also an encouragement to share the truth about God with those who don't know him. You may have family members, friends, neighbours whose hearts seem so dark to the things of God. But when God speaks, we saw in Genesis, it's illuminated. When God says, let there be light, there is light. So pray and so proclaim. The Exodus language comes in chapter 3. And there we get a comparison now. Paul actually says the glory we see, this is verses 7 to 10, the glory we see actually exceeds what Moses saw because Moses was part of an inferior covenant. He was part of a temporary covenant that was passing away. And the covenant that Moses brought in actually ultimately led to the condemnation of the covenant people of God under the law. But we are part of a permanent covenant and a covenant that brings righteousness And therefore, we don't need God's glory veiled like Israel did. We can actually look God's glory full in the face. And amazingly, we don't die because one has already died in our place. Instead, when we look at the glory of God, we are transformed into the image of Christ. Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If you like, we do die. Our old self dies when we look at Christ, but our our renewed self, our new self in Christ actually is transformed. If sin is falling short of the glory of God, seeing the glory of God and looking away, righteousness is gazing deep into the glory of God and being changed by it. Now this is progressive and partial. We're changed from one degree of glory to another. We're told it's not until we actually get to see Jesus face to face. This is 1 John 3 verse 2. When we see him face to face, we'll be changed instantly and we'll be changed completely. But right now, we see him with eyes of faith and we're changed progressively and partially. This is how you build your life on the foundation of God this year, is by beholding the glory of God in Jesus and being transformed into the same image. How do we do that? What, what practically does that mean? Well, to behold something means to look intently at something. And if you've ever tried to watch a movie and read your phone at the same time, you will know that you can't look intently at two things at once as much as you try and fool yourself. So firstly, to behold the glory of the Lord means looking away from some things. Here in context, it means looking away from the law. When you internalize the commandments of God to try and get better, I must not do this, I must do this, ironically, actually, that leads to your condemnation. Paul says, verse 6 of chapter 3, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. We must secondly look away from our own sin. Again, ironically, when you focus on your own sin, I'm so bad, these are the ways I fall short, actually, that becomes your meditation and you start to reinforce your sin. reflecting on your own sin has no power to transform. I want to say also 
We need to look away from our various distractions, the glory of the television screen that actually dulls us to the things of God. Maybe you've got to look away this year from your investment portfolio and all that you've got going on. Because Jesus says, actually, you can't be devoted to both God and money. Pick one. Maybe for you, it means looking away from the rising case numbers of COVID in Tasmania and reading every news article and following along. That won't transform you. God, I think, is jealous for our attention. And now is the time to put away other objects of devotion and gaze long into Jesus Christ alone. And Paul tells us in this passage, we behold the glory of Jesus in his word. Verse 15 To this day, whenever Moses is read, that is, whenever the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over the hearts of the people of Israel. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul tells us that our unique privilege is actually when we read this book, we see Jesus. That's our privilege as Christians. We see the glory of God. So this year, when you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, read, believe, Meditate and pray over it until you see the glory of Jesus in it. So I ask you, what rhythms will you put in place this year to ensure that that happens, to ensure you have time in which you are just devoted to seeing the glory of God? What competitors to your attention do you need to eliminate ruthlessly and get out of the way so that you can look intently at the glory of Jesus? I'll ask you this. If you devote yourself this year to really gazing long into the glory of Jesus, what kind of person might you be by the end of this year as you are transformed from one degree of glory to another? So let's build our lives on the foundations of God this year. Let's lay aside all other objects of devotion. Let's behold the glory of the Lord and let's come out from that place like Moses did with faces glowing, radiant with the glory of God. And then let's go into a dark world to share the truth of the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that though our faces now are physically veiled by a mask, there is nothing that can be done to us to veil our spirits to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would not be like your people so often were, who had these privileges from you, these divine privileges to be told your laws, to be given your covenant, and yet who went after other things. Lord, let us actually lean into the unique privilege of being in Christ, that you've spoken that word into our hearts to illuminate it, that you've taken the veil away so that when we read your word, we see the glory of your son and we're changed. Lord, change us this year, transform us put to death all other competitors. May we have no other gods before you. May we make no idols for ourselves. May we pray, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.